Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have Kimberly Quinlan, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California, specializing in anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, eating disorders, and body-focused repetitive behaviors. She provides one-on-one treatment and online courses for those who are struggling in these areas. Kimberly is known for a vibrant and mindful approach to mental health issues and is an expert presenter and support group facilitator for various conferences such as the International OCD Foundation Conference and Los Angeles County Psychological Association Eating Disorder Interest Group. She has been featured in many world-renowned and prestigious media outlets such as the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, KCRW Public Radio, the Seattle Times, and the Australian newspaper. Kimberly has also consulted on various mental health issues with programs such as ABC's 2020 and Telemundo. Kimberly is available to speak about any mental health topics, including anxiety and eating disorder management, mindfulness tools, mental health stigma, and mental well-being. This is a great conversation about OCD and self-compassion. Let's get right into it. Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I'm so pumped to have Kimberly Quinlan on. This has been a little bit in the making, right? We're back and forth and back and forth, but we made it. We're here and we're ready to go. So without further ado, can you introduce yourself to the listeners so we can get a better sense of who you are and what you're up to? Sure. So thank you for having me. My name is Kimberly Quinlan. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California. I specialize in OCD and OCD-related disorders, including eating disorders. And I am like a self-compassion geek um, and a mindfulness geek. And that's about me. Not bad things to be a geek about. <laughs> right? Out of all favorite. the things you can choose, you know, we got Dungeons & Dragons, Star Wars, Star Trek, <laughs> and you went like the the self-awareness, mindfulness what kind of, I always like to ask therapists because I'm an LCSW, you're an LMFT, licensed marriage family therapist. We got all these letters in the alphabet, mm-hmm. but what pushed you towards that direction of the mental health world? Um, I originally wanted to do psychology and then I got an eating disorder um, in college and that led me down the path of wanting to be um, a dietitian and a kinesiologist, all the things that would have kept my eating disorder nice and strong. So um, I, I was really, really kind of deep into, of course, studying the things that would have kept me in that disorder. And then all of a sudden, after doing that for some time, I and you know, really coming through some recovery within my own eating disorder, I decided I wanted to become a therapist. And so I live here in America, but I am Australian. That's why my accent is a little, you know, Aussie. Um, And that was sort of the easiest way for me to transition given my international bachelor's degree was to go into marriage and family therapy. So that's what I did. That's so interesting that that is what impacted, you know, I I love hearing people's stories and their journey. I I truly believe that we all have a calling. I think a lot of therapists in the mental health world, and I'm I'm using therapists in a very broad term, but I'm talking about psychologists. I'm talking about clinical social workers. I'm talking about LMHCs and LMFTs and every all wonderful in between. And Mm -hmm. I think we all have a calling to help and be, and, and be helpful to people. Is it hard for you to help when you have a past or history of similar things that you're helping? 
If I were to be completely transparent, I think that once I became a therapist, I didn't want to treat eating disorders. I think I kind of disowned that part of me. And I was like, nope, I want to treat anxiety. Um, and I wanted to be really up in panic disorder and things like that. So I really put my head deep into that. That's why I became trained in OCD. I personally don't have obsessive compulsive disorder. But as soon as I started treating it, I really fell in love with it. Um, and it's And it was nice for me to be treating something that I personally didn't have. Um, And there's pros and cons to that. But then the cool thing is, is as I continued to specialize in OCD, I really saw that a lot of people with eating disorders have OCD and there was an overlap there. And so I kind of naturally fell into that specialty of doing both. And, and, you know, recently I've been doing some research as someone who works in the, the world of anxiety, um, and I, I dabble here and there with OCD, but I'm not specialized in OCD. Uh, and I very much understand where my limits are with that world. Uh, and I'm the, be the first to say, hey, this is out of my out of my wheelhouse. It's so interesting. There's a huge connection sometimes between OCD and eating disorders. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So the thing to first to know is that, first of all, let's be really clear about what OCD is. Um, if I can really leave today and everyone being clear on what OCD is, I will feel like I've done a really good job because it's sort of the main mission that we have. Unfortunately, in today's society, people believe that OCD is this the desire for cleanliness or the desire for symmetry and things to look pretty and line up. And while that is one component of having OCD, it's actually a very small component of having OCD. Um, first of all, to have OCD, you have to have an obsession which is usually a an intrusive, repetitive, unwanted thought or a feeling or a sensation, maybe even an urge or an image. Um, and this is very, very distressing for the person with OCD and they do not want to have these thoughts, which is why it's so important that listeners and everybody be aware that sort of saying, oh, I'm very OCD about things and I love my pantry to be clean. That's actually not anything like having OCD because OCD is awful and painful and excruciating and debilitating. So once you have those obsessions, you also do these compulsive behaviors and they can be mental or physical. So it's not just moving things and jumping over cracks. It can be avoidance. It could be reassurance. It could be mental rumination. Now, an eating disorder can show up and look very similar to that with the obsessions and the compulsive behaviors. Um, However, there is a couple of main differences. So number one, people with eating disorders often um, are, their thoughts are ego, what we call syntonic, meaning they line up with their values. They want to lose weight or they want certain parts of their body to change. They don't want the disorder, but that's often come from a societal or cultural view and being forced onto them. Um, So that is a little bit of a difference. And the thing to know is the obsession for eating disorders must involve the preoccupation with weight and body size and body shape. Um, The compulsions, and this is where I really resonated with people with OCD, is the compulsions are very similar. You have a fear. You don't want to tolerate that fear. So you do a behavior to remove that fear. That fear is gone for a short period of you get relief from it but then it comes back and then you have to do the behavior again and then it comes back and then you have to do it again. And now you're stuck. And I think it's just interesting that when it comes to OCD treatment, uh, people think that it's just like, just don't do that. Like don't Mm -hmm. step on that and don't move this and don't do this a few times. And um, 
people think it's just so simple. And I, I've been saying this very often uh, on the podcast and, and with my clients and, and other ways that I can, whether I'm on a podcast or it's on this podcast, the dude therapist, it's like, people don't want to do this. They can't stop it yet. They don't know how yet, or they're not aware of what they're doing sometimes, or they're not able to. It's not that they want to all of a sudden do these rituals or these, these, these have these intrusive thought processes. No one's like, yes, I got it. I won. Right. right? No, that's not what it's like. And, right. and, and even in the world of anxiety or depression, it's not like just stop doing it. Just stop thinking that way. Just think positively and you'll be better. Right. It's not so simple. So when we make it simple, when we as a society simplify mental health to it just being get over it, it takes away and dismisses the severity and intensity and, and the crippling effect it can have on someone's effective functioning, right. which is so difficult. You know, I, I, over the years, I've had a few clients who have um, di- a diagnosis of OCD and it's been women. And I haven't experienced working with men in the OCD world. Do you see a difference or have seen a difference in maybe gender um, and and OCD and how it shows up or how it impacts and, and maybe some of the research that goes into it? Yeah, it's a good question. So I see very much a 50-50, you know, so for me. I'm sure there is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and that could be very much demographics and society and what country you live in and how much uh, a certain gender is comfortable going to therapy and so forth. Um, even religion, I'm sure, can impact who raises their hand for therapy and who doesn't. Um, I see very much a, a, an equal divide. How does it present differently? Well, not a lot different at all. Generally, and I hate to say generally, but generally there is one specific, across the board, it's the same. There is one specific OCD subtype that mostly affects mothers, which is perinatal obsessions, which is the fear that you may harm your newborn child. Um, They don't want that thought. They're terrified by the thought. It's absolutely devastating. But we also do have evidence that fathers who aren't impacted by perinatal hormonal changes also have, you know, sort of uh, pedophilia obsessions or harm obsessions, which can be incredibly painful. Um, But generally, we would see a divide that's very equal. And the presentation is very common equally as well. Yeah. And and I want to just give a shout out to you clarifying OCD earlier. And, you know, uh, the people that I've worked with, the clients that I've worked with who've had OCD, none of them had anything to do with cleanliness. No. None of them had to do with, oh, I want want it to be organized. I want it to be nice. I want the labels. I want all the intensity. It was intrusive thoughts about sexual um, acts on people in in the world. Um, And and another one was about um, safety or health of family members, which then now creates this atmosphere of if the word is said or the, or the conversation is talked about, about this idea, which was, which is cancer, all of a sudden, the, uh, the triggers and anxiety start going into play. Um, and it's really about safety. Right. And um, it's about if I have this, it's a very much all or nothing thinking. Um, can you talk about what that means? And maybe clarify for people who don't know what that means. I know I just threw out a term all or, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe how that impacts and how that integrates with OCD. 
Right. So, so just before we go ahead, there are multiple subtypes of OCD. So right? many. So many, and and so that's why it's so important that people understand that it's a it, OCD can attack any area of your life, and it's usually the area of your life that you value the most. So, if you are a very spiritual person, it may really attack that. If you're a family person, it may attack your you know your your thoughts around responsibility and so forth and t- keeping your family safe. So it can it can be in so many different subtypes, some that you've already talked about. Um, underlying those subtypes, there are often sort of behaviors we engage in that keep the disorder well and running very in an oiled way. And all or nothing thinking or black and white thinking is is one of those, which is So let's say if you have a fear that, um, you know, we could use the example of, you know, health anxiety, like I'm either well or I'm very sick. Like I can can either have no symptoms or have cancer symptoms. They're my two all or nothing. That belief or that type of thinking is going to keep you in that anxiety cycle instead of understanding that every, every human has a headache here and there, they might have a pain in the tummy, they might Mm -hmm. have a sore jaw. And that doesn't mean that they have a headache that is a brain tumor or a tummy ache that is a stomach cancer or a jaw problem, which is throat cancer. So it's important for us to recognize those trends. And there's many different distorted thoughts. Catastrophization is another one, which is where people think that, you know, it's in these catastrophic ways, right? Like my you know, my kid goes out for a walk. Let's say you you let your kid go on a play date with a friend. You might have a catastrophic kind of thinking where it's like, oh, they're going to get hit by a bus and or be kidnapped killed or something. Kidnapped, intense. yes. So and where's so- the line? Where's the line of like a, a healthy anxiety thought, right? Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I try to push this as well with my clients that anxiety is like a warning. It's a, an alarm that goes off to tell you that something might be wrong or something might be off or something might be different and you have to think about. It doesn't mean like, oh my gosh, I now have to get treatment or now the world is ending because I have one anxious thought. We all have anxious thoughts yes. throughout the day. It doesn't mean that there's a disorder or a quote unquote problem. Big air quotes on that problem. So where is the line of being just an anxiety versus it being intrusive? And we all have intrusive thoughts too. Mm -hmm. So where is it then the, the, the red zone of maybe I need to get extra help or go to a specialist for something a little above and beyond than just anxiety? Right. So it's not the thought. So that's the biggest misconception, right? Like your thoughts and your feelings and your sensations and your urges, they actually aren't the problem because as you've just said, everybody has them, right? Like I just love telling my clients, like literally there's nothing these walls have not heard. You know, the most disgusting thing and the most grossest thing and the most preposterous thing I've already, you know, OCD's already come up with that already. Where we get into trouble is when you respond to those in a way where you try and control or remove that thought, feeling, sensation, urge, or image, um, and you're doing it in a way that is now impacting your wellness or your functioning, right? So I always say, I have a fear of having, you know, ugly teeth, right? That's a fear I have every day. I look in the mirror and I go, geez, I'd love to have nice teeth. And so I brush my teeth, right? I engage in the physical behavior, not because I like to brush my teeth. I hate brushing my teeth, but I do it because I have a fear of getting gum disease. But that's not impacting my functioning. We could say that is compulsive, but it's not impacting my functioning. And I'm not doing it from a place of urgency 
or a high level of anxiety. Where we get into trouble with OCD is usually when you're acting in a way that's so urgent that your daily functioning is going. Let's say you really should be finishing that deadline for school, but instead you're doing this other compulsion to remove your anxiety. Or you're doing it in a way that's so repetitive that it's interrupting your your, mm-hmm. your behavior. So if I brush my teeth all day, well, again, yeah, that that would be a problem. Your teeth are really nice, by the way. Thank you. I'm very jealous. <laughs> my teeth are, are not great, and they're a little yellow. So I'm I'm very I'm very proud of your teeth, and I'm just, I'm just I just just do video. So don't no judgment for me. No. But I, I think that in the end, it's so true. And I knew you were going to say that. That's why I asked the thinking part because I think we get so consumed by thoughts equal us. That our thoughts are now the epitome of who we are when thoughts are just thoughts, mm-hmm. feelings are feelings, and they, they are impacted by our society, by who we are, maybe our past or our future and experiences or labels, but it doesn't mean that is now us. And to be very clear, when it comes to the rituals, right, there isn't one ritual that solves it. That's the scary part. Because mm-hmm. when you get in the loop, right, when you get into that kind of ritual, you start going, okay, so I did this for a couple months. This worked. Now things aren't helping because things mutate, right? It's changing. It it it, it kind of loses its effect. So what do you do? You add something. You, add you adjust it. You do something different. Now the monster of this ritual kind of gets bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden your ritual now takes you three hours. Um, and if you don't do it right, you have to start from the beginning. Right. Three hours again. Mm-hmm. And when... There's this, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, when it comes to OCD treatment, it's the exposure therapy, of course, and and the anxiety ladder and all those kind of things that are used. But a lot of times people think it's the, when it's really hard treatment. It's It's not for the faint of heart. It is awful (laughs) because you're trying to delay something that has been helping you with your anxiety, feelings, thoughts, and bodily reactions. And as a therapist, you're trying to delay that to show them you are okay. You do not need this, this one thing that you're relying on, whether it's stepping this way or doing a certain movement or something that you've now created. You literally have created that ritual to think and and believe that it helps you. And it's our job to kind of help you understand you don't need that. Right. And it's teaching you by exposure therapy and it is so damn hard. Right. That's why you should go to a specialist <laughs> and not just someone who does just talk therapy because talk therapy only goes so far, right? Mm-hmm. CBT therapy only goes so far. You need someone who's a specialist who understands the ups and downs, the back and forth and the three steps forward and 50 se- 15 steps mm-hmm. backwards of OCD and it's so important the work you're doing. And one of the things that I've seen, and I want to get into this for a little bit in the last 10 to 15 minutes that we have, something I see so often, especially with anxiety and OCD is an, is an anxiety disorder, is the idea of internal frustration and hatred towards self. Mm-hmm. How we so easily go like, what the F is wrong with me? And like, why do I keep doing this? And I hate myself for this. And it's so annoying that I'm stuck and, and you want to get out, but you don't know how to get out and you're trapped. You're trapped in this kind of confined prison that you have created to solve a problem that isn't there, but that is there as well is so real to you. And all of a sudden you just turn on yourself. Right. And the second, and I've worked with a few people who have OCD, the second they backtrack just a little bit, they're like, idiot, like, and they get so angry. Where does self-compassion come in and how is that part of the treatment model 
for OCD specifically? And is it really that important for the right. OCD? Well, so um, a shameless plug is I I have written a book around this exact topic. The main reason for what? that. I didn't know that. <laughs> The main reason for that is, like you said, the, the clinical treatment, the gold standard treatment for OCD is exposure and response prevention. It needs to include the response prevention, which is basically you expose yourself to your fear, which is scary and hard. But then as you do that, instead of doing a compulsion, you actually practice not engaging in that compulsion and you allow the discomfort to rise and fall on its own, right? And that's the whole basis of exposure and response prevention. But what I was really finding is that a lot of my patients and clients, while they were riding that wave so successfully, like badasses, is there was this internal, like you said, shaming, blaming, guilting, self-criticism, self-punishment. And that was actually becoming a compulsion in and of itself. So if you had a thought, let's say maybe, you know, you had a harm thought or a religious obsession or so forth, that doesn't feel good. Now that we've stopped doing a compulsion, we've, we've successfully reduced it. Instead, they're just like, like you said, I'm an idiot. I'm so terrible. What kind of human has these thoughts from customers? It's like the worst person in the world. And so self-compassion is ultimately a container for where you can tenderly ride that wave out instead of aggressively riding the wave out of discomfort. And it's ultimately creating a safe place for any thought to come for any feeling to rise and fall, for any strong urge or any strong image. And so that now not only can't do you know that you can tolerate the thought, but it's not like this brutal, horrible experience, even though, yes, it's still self-compassion shouldn't reduce all your discomfort, but it should be a safe place for that discomfort to, to rise and fall. And, and I think that self-compassion is not just for OCD. It's mm-hmm. for everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, even if you have a mental health diagnosis or, or anything, because right. I, I know for me, as uh, I have ADHD, um, I have bouts of anxiety and I'm a parent right. and I'm a husband, right? right? And things come up where you're just like, did you really just say that? Or did you right. really just do that? Or why are you not? And right. automatically just start attacking yourself because it's so easy because mm-hmm. there's always something we aren't proud of or happy about or doing yeah. so well because we're human. Right. And when you throw a layer of OCD and the interesting thing about OCD is that it latches on to randomness right? and things that you would never expect that it starts somewhere and totally morphs into something totally different years in the making. Right. Is there a sweet spot that you have found in the treatment of OCD, whether it's um, years since diagnosis, is there um, this idea that I'm a lost cause I shouldn't be getting help. Let me just suffer. Can you kind of talk to people who might be so wrapped up in their OCD, they feel they're a lost cause mm. and this idea that there has to be a sweet spot. And if you don't do it with this, this amount of time, that's it. You're screwed. Right. So I think it's important to recognize that OCD is in the top 10 of debilitating disorders. That's including medical disorders right? So it's an incredibly painful disorder. And it's very commonly comes with a secondary depression. So a lot of people with OCD are already feeling completely overwhelmed, and they just don't feel like they'll ever get better. The thing to remember, and I hopefully I'm answering your question correctly is, is there is a very successful treatment that will help. 
unlike some disorders, we have a very, very well, you know, well-oiled machine in terms of what treatment it is, exposure and response prevention. We have even more research now that self-compassion can be very beneficial to people with OCD, including other disorders like depression and eating disorders and hair pulling and skin picking and so forth. Um, so this, the, sweet spot, the sweet spot is, number one, one of the core parts of self-compassion is recognizing that you're not alone. When you feel alone, you will not believe that you'll ever get better and you believe that you are the worst person in the world. But once you can recognize that millions of people have OCD, there are millions of people out talking about it now, which is great. Um, and when you can find that community, I find that to be the sweet spot because it helps you to realize like, what? Like so often in my, I have an Instagram page almost every day. If I post something about a specific subtype of OCD, people will be like, oh my God, I had no idea any other people had this. I literally thought I was the only person on this planet. And that acknowledgement can be where self-compassion kind of flourishes because they give themselves permission to exist and they're not alone anymore. So hopefully I answered your question. Even if you didn't, you, you answered beautifully. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you answered great. Where is then, you know, I like this idea of like identifying, maybe this is just because I'm a therapist and like identifying ideas. Where is it self-compassion? And then when, when does it self-compassion get maybe abused or used mm -hmm. as well? Like I'm fine. So I'm not going to change. Is there like a happy medium of where uh, self-compassion is utilized versus abused? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so here is a very common misconception is self-compassion is not saying you're off the hook. It's not that. So it's not saying, oh, you're fine, you're going through a hard time, go ahead and do more compulsions. That is not compassion. And people who are saying that that is, is they're actually misusing it. Self-compassion is actually, we, you know, the way it's conceptualized is it's tender but it's also got a very strong backbone, right? So think of it in terms of if your body is like your strong back and a soft heart, that two of these two opposing truths can be true at the same time. So a lot of the time, you know, we talked about reducing compulsions, that requires a little bit, a bit of badassery, right? It requires you to pull your shoulders back and say, I'm I'm commonly known for the phrase, it's a beautiful day to do hard things. I say it all the time on my podcasts and throughout the books and everything that I do is it's a beautiful day to do hard things, which is ultimately saying we have to marry self-compassion as an act of kindness to yourself, which is not to do those compulsions. Doing compulsions is not the kind thing to do or you know, it's the same with addiction. Like yeah. having another drink is not the kind thing to do, right? Yeah. It, it keeps you stuck in a disorder. I need to get a tagline. That's a great tagline. It sounds like the oh. Grey's Anatomy, like it's a beautiful day to do surgery. It's, it started that way. It's a beautiful ah. day, yeah. It started that way. I, I don't know why, how it happened. You can't go wrong I... with Patrick Dempsey. You, know, you, can't go wrong. <laughs> you can McDreamy for life, McDreamy right? McDreamy is the best. We can have a but, whole another episode about McDreamy versus McSteamy if you want. We could, oh, okay. Which team are you? Because I'm McDreamy 100%. It just – McSteamy bothers me until me, you get to know him later on yeah. and he's like this really cute person with Lexi and all that. No spoilers. But yes. McDreamy is just McDreamy. You know? Oh, like it's I just... have to love him. <laughs> As When you first started saying it, I'm like, I think that's the source. Yeah. It's a great day to do surgery. and. 
I think it's important, you know, some people ask me, you know, I just started working on a website and like, oh, you know, I need a tagline. Like, I don't have taglines. Maybe I do and I don't realize that. Maybe I need to ask my clients if I say something repetitively often. But I think what you're saying is something so important. Self-compassion doesn't get you off the hook from working. I love that. The backbone and the soft heart, right? The kindness, but the firmness of working hard, but with compassion and care to give yourself the space to learn, to grow, to fail and learn from that and then be successful the next time. Right. I think the hardest thing with OCD is that it becomes so ingrained in who you are. You forget that there might be something else different that could be different than who you are or have known for maybe months, years, being told, well, this is my life. I got to keep doing this. This is my life. I got to keep doing this. Or being told from family, like you're insane. You're crazy. Why you can't do this? Like just stop doing it. The Just the reinforcement that there's a problem with you by having compassion for yourself. You realize that it's not something that you're trying to do on purpose, but something that is just that needs a little guidance and love, but yes, a firm hand to help you through that process, holding you accountable and holding you up when you succeed and being there to pick you up when you fail. Right. And it's so important. That is the beauty of therapy to the, to the nth degree, mm-hmm. whether you have OCD, anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, couples, relationship issues, anything, eating disorder, anything in between, whatever title you want, ADHD. Uh, there's so many right now. That's what it's all about. The therapist is not this person who is above you or better than you or greater than you. It is someone who is with you in the trenches, helping you through that process, holding your hand, being there when you fail, being there when you succeed, being there when you have small wins and big wins and small back, you know, back steps and big back steps. They go, oh, no, no, we got this. Let's keep at it. Let's keep at it. How do you stay? How do you stay firm? As a therapist, how do you stay on it when someone, especially with OCD, when it's such down and dirty and it's so intense and it's so raw and it's so real and new OCDs probably come up throughout the treatment when they first came in for this style or or this subtype and all of a sudden little things start creeping out. How do you stay strong as a therapist in such a hard treatment? Um, it's an interesting question. That was the end of my TED talk, by the way. That was no, my- no. Um how do I say strong during it? I mean, I just modeled, like, for me, it's actually, it's hard work, but it's not um, difficult. It's actually repeat. Like, I have lots of staff that work for me, my employees who are also therapists. And and I'm constantly saying to them, like, this isn't actually that hard. It's not actually that much like a scientist stuff. It's literally sta- teaching your client how to stare fear in the face. That's what we do. Um, that's ultimately what we do. And so our job is actually to not that my patients who have anxiety are constantly being told by fear what they're doing today. Fear will wake up with them and say, this is what you're going to do today. You're going to do this, this, and this, and you will not stray from me or I'll give you a panic attack. And so my job is ultimately to never back down to fear. I don't I'm not afraid of fear. I'm, I, I model to my clients. I'm not afraid of their fear. I model to my clients like, uh, you know, I don't really, I even say to my clients, I don't really care what your fear has to say because we don't want to listen to fear anymore. And so I try to model that as much as I can in a compassionate way. Um, is just, you know, we stare fear in face. If that's that's the only way out here, that's you, you, are, you make your decisions or fear will. They're your choices. Oh, I love that. And I think it's so true as a therapist, like we have to be the modeling in the room that is the calm. 
the common collected. It doesn't mean we don't have an o- our own stuff in our own lives. It doesn't mean that we're not human. We definitely are. But it means that for our clients, we need to teach them what it means to show up for themselves. Right. And sometimes they haven't ever learned that. They don't even right. know what it means to be compassionate for themselves. No one's ever taught them or has modeled them compassion for what they're going through and have been put down and degraded for their mental health struggles mm. versus being loved, hugged, and cared for um, and given – be seen mm-hmm. for a person that happens to have a disorder but right. not the disorder itself. That that's the only thing people see. Right. Uh, and I think having mental health and, – and you know this, I'm sure – it gets a lot of bad rep uh, for um, a stigma and, and being – you know, looked at differently when in reality, the numbers don't lie. One in five people have a mental health disorder diagnosed. Right. One in five people in America. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So you're not alone in that. Does it look any different in Australia? Treatment and, and mental no. health? It's the same. Because I was same. recently speaking to someone in the UK uh, and she was saying that the, just finding treatment is so hard. And, oh, and absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, Absolutely, I and agree like, with that. And and the insurance structuring and and uh, she went to the uh, she brought her sister to the hospital and the hospital said, oh, go home and have a cup of tea. She'll get over it. Like the <laughs> ER nurse, and right. she was like, my my sister is suicidal. Like right. a cup of tea is not going to solve a problem. And I love tea. I'm a big fan of tea. <laughs> I, I told never, her this. I've I told never her this. Had a tea that helps I told me with her this. That. I'm like, I love tea. I collect tea. I drink tea all the time. I never had a cup of tea that all of a sudden solved my anxieties and worries right. of life. Um, whatever tea that is, please sell it. Like, just right. do something with it. But so, is that look different regarding the treatment itself and how mental health is looked at, and mm-hmm. and maybe the access to mental health compared to America? Yeah, no, they have this. So the presentation of OCD looks the same, but but yeah, no, I didn't mean have, that. I, I, I didn't mean yeah. like. Uh, but no, they have the, the same world, struggles that we have, right? Mm-hmm. I think the whole world is. I mean, it's getting better. There is more and more. I mean, a, a big part of my work has been this exact problem. So I was, you know, I, I'm so lucky to be highly trained in OCD and I have staff who are trained, but we're still turning people away. I'm not going to lie. We turn people away every single day, either because they don't live in our state, they don't live in our country, we're not licensed where they live. And so from that, um, we I actually created online courses for people with OCD, um, not as therapy, but for those who absolutely cannot get access to exposure and response prevention. And it's basically me just training them the first seven to nine sessions. Like this is this is how we would set it up. This is how you do it. And so, so it's a self-led course, mm-hmm. but that was created specifically for that reason, which was just turning people away to states that had no help, countries that had no help, or they, like in the UK and Australia, they're on a six-month wait list to get in. So, yeah, it's an ongoing problem. We're solving it slowly. Um, But, yeah, unfortunately, that's the way that it is. Like I know in New York, the uh, specialists that I know of and the people who really work in the OCD world are so expensive. and not that they don't deserve or earn their money. I'm not trying to bash them for charging what they want to charge. Um, but the access to someone who maybe takes your insurance slash maybe is affordable out of pocket is rare and far between uh-huh. that it makes it that much difficult. That's more difficult uh-huh. to actually find someone to help you, right. which is why I believe a lot of people end up going to run-of-the-mill regular therapists, uh-huh. um, specifically for OCD, who are not specialized in OCD treatment, maybe delaying 
the real hard work, not that it's a waste, but it may not be as helpful as oh. the, the, the real nitty gritty of OCD train treatment. Right. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's, just, it's sad. It's sad because there, there's not a lot we can do because the more therapists we have, the more saturated it is. And people might not want to be specialized in certain things or pay for the, the, uh, the courses and pay to be trained in X, Y, and Z treatment for OCD. Mm-hmm. But if you're listening and Kimberly, if you can please, you know, chime into this, find someone who actually specialized if you can, uh, if, because it, it, right. it will help you in the long run. Um, and you're investing in your health. You're investing in yourself. Just like I went to a specialist for my GI issues. I didn't just go to a PCP, a primary care doctor for my GI issues. I went to a specialist to help me with my Crohn's. Right. I, I didn't just go to a regular doctor and say, hey, solve my stomach. Right. Uh, I'll try. Right. Um, so if you can and you can swing it, it doesn't mean you should starve. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to afford clothes and right. rent. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, if that's the case... Please find someone who's affordable. But if you can, you're investing in your health for the future. So, right. Kimberly, in the last question, I like to ask, uh, especially guests who are therapists, um, if no one listened to anything else that we've talked about till now, which is a waste of your time. If you're a listener, you should have listened to the entire thing. Stop here. <laughs> go back. Go back and start again. Because Kimberly has amazing things to say. What are one to three things that you can tell people or talk to through to people who are struggling with OCD right now? And what are some things you can kind of impart on a lasting message that that you think would be great for them to hear? Sure. So speaking on just what you were talking about. So let me just quickly throw in something so important, which is uh, there are, like I said, tons of, I, I have courses, other therapists have courses now, which is great, right? No one just wants to hear me talk. They want, you know, some variability. Number two is there are lots of workbooks out there, right? So if you have the choice between talk therapy and sitting down with a therapist who's willing to go through an OCD workbook, not mine, not just mine, but there are a couple of really great ones out there. That's gold. The reason that's so important is if you're not doing ERP, there's a really good chance you're actually doing compulsions with your therapist. And that's the hard part to, to sort of swallow, which is if you're in session and you're ruminating and you're mulling over your obsession, you're actually making the obsession stronger. Not only are you not getting better, you're making it worse. So that's a really important thing that just even just buy the workbook for your therapist if they're through insurance and say, please, would you read this? Because I really want to make sure I'm doing this correctly. So that's one thing. But that, that aside, the first thing to say is no matter what thought you have, no matter how heinous and disgusting you think it is, I want you to give yourself permission to have it compassionately, right? Like I, 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 there's no thought. Often clients will say, oh, you know, okay, I'm going to tell you my thought. Here I go. I'm going to tell you my thought. Here I go. And then they finally tell me and I go, okay, cool. And they're like, what? Like (laughs) you've heard of this. So I really want to give you permission to give, you know, there are no thoughts and feelings and sensations that are off limits. Right. And then the final piece here is I'm going to say it, no, not, not in any intention to be corny, but it is a beautiful day to do hard things. Practice staring your fear in the face. That's what this is about. Fear will not kill you. It won't, it won't do any damage. In fact, the more you practice doing it, the more empowered and strong you're going to feel. So even for those of you who are listening, who don't have OCD, find a fear every day and practice facing it. 
you won't believe the change it will make in your life. So for, so that's baby steps, baby steps, but they lead to big middle-sized steps and then you get big steps, face your fears. That is the main goal. Thank you so much. You know, I'll be honest here. One of my biggest fears is like spiders, like tarantulas. I, I'm not doing that anytime soon, but I do kill spiders for my wife. So I'm starting, you know, I'm there. <laughs> Good job. I try, I try, yeah. but uh, like there are, there's so many things that we have in our life that kind of block us from being effective and functioning and, and, yeah. and taking the most of our world. Yeah. We have one life to live. That's yeah. it. Whether you believe in incarnation or all that kind of stuff right now in the body that you're in, the world that yeah. you're in, whatever it is that you believe in, you have one life. Right. Why waste it living, hiding? Right. Don't Get let fear make your choices. Exactly. Get help today. Get help. Reach out. There's so many resources. Everyone's telling me I need to create a course. I stink at writing and don't have the time, but one mm-hmm. day maybe. But there are so many people out there like Kimberly. But let's promote Kimberly for a second. So where can people find you? Where can they reach out to you? Where can they get in touch with you? All those wonderful things so they don't just miss out on amazing knowledge and education that you have. Sure. So so let me start with um, free stuff. So I have a free podcast that people can listen to. It's called Your Anxiety Toolkit. And that's free, right? That's for everybody. Um, from there, you can buy the workbook. It's called the Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD. And then if you want even more, you could go to CBT School where we have courses for OCD and hair pulling and skin picking. And then if you want even more than that, you can seek, we have private practice where we have nine therapists who work for me and we all do treatment for OCD and OCD related disorders. And um, it's called, it's KimberlyQuinlan-LMFT.com. So that one's a hard one to remember, but that's where you can find me or you can go to Instagram, which is just Kimberly Quinlan. Amazing. And I know this episode is going to be in January in season three, but... You have a special thing coming out in October 2021, right? The book. That's right. The book. The book. So in, in during COVID, I uh, was approached by a, a publisher to write a book. It was literally the worst time ever to write a book, given how chaotic life was. However, the cool part was um, it's the time where I needed to practice self-compassion the most um, in lockdown. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be out in October of 21. Good for you. That's congrats on the book coming out. I say this all the time. I have like six book ideas I want to write, but I, I'm, I'm I, my fear is writing. I have a fear <sighs> of writing because I'm not good at writing. I well, know, I know. Don't hate on me. Don't hate on me. But I am starting no, little by either. little. Oh, I'm I, not a good writer. My wife edits my <laughs> posts sometimes. No joke. Shout out to my wife Ariella. She has access to my Instagram. She goes, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to change that, and she edits right. some things. Um, uh, so it's just something with my ADHD. It's been a history of mine that I'm just not a great uh, writer, even though I did really well in grad school in my writing. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, maybe they just didn't read grammar. That was no, it. It's the scariest thing I've, uh, one of the scariest things I've done in my entire career. It was painful. Well, I am um, very proud and jealous at the same time because I've, I admire people who write books. Um, I think it's amazing. Um, and I think it's a worthwhile investment for anyone to read. Um, and if they, they, it speaks to them, even one chapter could impact someone getting treatment or feeling more love for themselves. That's the most important thing you can do. So I really commend you and thank you so much for taking the time today to really speak to, to, to me and to us and bring so much knowledge to the world on OCD. So, uh, really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. 
and it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics, and really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along, subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. We've got more guests and more great content coming your way.